Hello and welcome into episode number 23 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today we're talking about an important and overlooked key to prayer. And we're also asking what the deal is with putting your hand under somebody's thigh to swear an oath. All right, so our passages today are Genesis chapter 24, Nehemiah 13, Matthew 23, and Acts 23. Yesterday's discussion topic included dung, and today's discussion topic is also the tiniest bit questionable, perhaps the slightest bit PG, but the prayer part we're going to be talking about today is really going to have some great encouragements from lots of people, including our old friend Charles Spurgeon. So stick around for that. Maybe tomorrow's reading won't have anything in it that would make my wife blush. You just never know about Genesis, though. There's always something interesting going on in Genesis. Speaking of Genesis, in today's chapter, we see Abraham preparing to die and sending his servant out to find a wife for Isaac. Interestingly, Abraham makes his servant swear an oath in a most unusual, at least to us in 2020, way. Then... Nehemiah 13 sees our titular character go WWE-style crazy on some of the fellow Israelites who've disobeyed God's commands. He beats them, curses them, and pulls out some of their hair. This is an interesting form of pastoral discipline, to say the least, that is rarely practiced today in most places. At least, uh, I guess I rarely practice it. Although there was that one time in church when I picked up uh, another pastor and threatened to powerbomb him, but uh, I sort of think he deserved that. Or maybe not. It was all in good fun. Matthew 23 so shows Jesus as an emotional and passionate powerhouse, displaying all the energy and the vigor of Nehemiah, but uh, doing it in a slightly less violent and more tender and broken-hearted way as he confronts the scribes and Pharisees. Finally, Acts chapter 23 sees Paul before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, charged with disregarding the law of Moses and bringing a non-Jewish person into the temple. There's not a single chapter in the Bible that is not God's word, nor devoid of application to believers. But I tell you, these four chapters today, they're even more full than normal of rich, powerful fantastic truth. So today is a day of great scripture to meditate on and ponder throughout the day. Shout outs to Todd Hitt from Arkansas for leaving an encouraging comment on our website. And you can do the same. Or if you want to, if you have a question you want us to cover on the show, you can go to BibleReadingPodcast.com. Show notes are there, a transcript of each episode, all the corny jokes I try to make, all that kind of good stuff is at Bible Reading Podcast. Thank you, Todd, for your comment. It was very encouraging. Also, a shout out to Pastor Brian Branham uh, in of, uh, in Georgia, who left a very nice, very encouraging review on iTunes. Thank you both so much. Thing about it is, when you're doing a daily podcast, day in and day out, you know, long time kind of working on it, it's really super encouraging to hear from people that are listening, even if they're not listening every day. It's just it's an encouraging thing to do that. So I appreciate you guys. I'm very grateful to you. On to Genesis. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. 
Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all he owned, Place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? Abraham answered him, Make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring, he will send his angel before you, and you can take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me. But don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. The servant took ten of his master's camels, and with all kinds of his master's good in ha- goods in hand, he went to Aram Naharaim, to Nahor's town. At evening, the time when women went out to draw water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink, and who responds, Drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, Drink, my lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they've had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels, while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord has made his journey a success. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, and for her wrists, two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold. "'Whose daughter are you?' he asked." Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She also said to him, We have plenty of straw and a feed and a place to spend the night. Then the man knelt low, worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and Laban ran out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he had heard his sister Rebekah's words, the man said this to me, he went to the man. He was standing there by the camels at the spring. 
Laban said, Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for your camels. So the man came to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and feed were given to the camels, and water was brought to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him. A meal was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So Laban said, Please, speak. I am Abraham's servant, he said. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become rich. He's given him flocks and herbs, silver and gold, male and female slaves and camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. My master put me under this oath. You will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but will go to my father's family and to my clan to take a wife from my son. But I said to my master, Suppose the woman will not come back with me. He said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and make your journey a success, and you will take a wife from my son from my clan and from my father's family. Then you will be free from my oath if you go to my family and they do not give her to you. You will be free from my oath. Today, when I came to the spring, I prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if only you will make my journey successful. I am standing here at a spring. Let the young woman who comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jug, and who responds to me, drink and I'll draw water for your camels also. Let her be the woman the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished praying silently, there was Rebecca coming with her jug on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. So I said to her, Please, let me have a drink. She quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll water your camels also. So I drank, and she also watered the camels. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she responded, The daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. Then I knelt low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the right way to take the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you are going to show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, tell me, and I will go elsewhere. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Rebecca is here in front of you. Take her and go, and let her be a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed to the ground before the Lord. Then he brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious gifts to her brother and her mother. Then he and the men with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they got up in the morning, he said, Send me to my master. But her brother and mother said, Let the girl stay with us for about ten days, then she can go. But he responded to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has made my journey a success. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, hmm, Let's call the girl and ask her opinion. They called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She replied, I will go. 
So they sent their sister Rebekah with the one who had nursed and raised her, and Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah, saying to her, Our sister, may you become thousands upon ten thousands. May your offspring possess the city gates of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her female servants got up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac was returning from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev region. In the early evening, Isaac went out to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? The servant answered, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac everything he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and took Rebekah to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. So, pretty remarkable, powerful passage there, and a long one. Question number one for us today. Why did Abraham require his servant to swear an oath in such an unusual way by putting his hand under his thigh? Now, it is worth remembering here that modern Americans, at least, often swear an oath with uh, maybe an uplifted hand or a hand on the Bible or even sometimes a hand on our heart. It's also worth remembering, and this is pretty important, New Testament Christians were not supposed to swear oaths. In fact, we're supposed to be people of such absolute integrity that we stay away from oaths. Our yes is our yes, our no is our no's. No crossing our hearts and hoping to die or anything like that. There is to be no flippant lack of integrity in followers of Christ. For instance, James 5.12 says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Now, it was different in Abraham's time. They were under the old covenant, and Abraham wasn't sinning by requiring this oath from his servant, nor was Jacob sinning when he required a similar earth, oath in the exact same hand under thigh manner with his son Joseph. So, what gives here? Well, the first thing you should know here, and again, mildly PG, is that it is very possible, perhaps even likely, that the word thigh here is a euphemism for the reproductive organs. So, consider this claim from the biblical scholars uh, Freeman and Chadwick. This is what they write in the uh, book Manners and Customs of the Bible. The word thigh here, Hebrew yachek, is a euphemism, that is, a mild or indirect word that is substituted for another word that is considered too harsh, blunt, or offensive. Without question, the servant's hand was placed beneath Abraham's procreative organs. These words are also euphemisms. Whether the placement of the hand had to do with the act of circumcision instituted by God and thus gave a covenant solemnity to the oath is not known. It has been said by some that it had reference to the long-range effects that the servant's mission would have upon Abraham's descendants, or that it symbolized that even his yet unborn children would avenge any violation of the act. But neither of these explanations seem to fit Israel. 
Israel, or Jacob's request, to his son Joseph to take his body out of Egypt and bury it where his fathers are buried when the same manner of swearing an oath was used. Now, in elaborating on this particular issue of the swearing of an oath, uh, the website gotquestions.org, which is a very handy resource, says this, the thigh was considered the source of posterity in the ancient world, or more properly, the loins or the testicles. The phrase, quote, under the thigh is could be a euphemism for on the loins. There are two reasons why someone would take an oath in this matter. Number one, Abraham had been promised a seed by God, and this covenantal blessing was passed on to his son and grandson and so on and so forth. Abraham made his trusted servant swear on the seed of Abraham that he would find a wife for Isaac. Or, number two, Abraham had received circumcision as the sign of the covenant, Genesis 17.10, Our custom is to swear on a Bible. The Hebrew custom was to swear on circumcision, the mark of God's covenant. The idea of swearing on one's loins is found in other cultures as well. In fact, the English word testify is directly related to the word testicles. So, according to that, this oath was made under, well, let's just say delicate circumstances to say the least. We swear oaths on our hearts and our Bibles, and Abraham and his offspring, by doing this action, were swearing oaths on the promise or the covenant of God to make Abraham into a great nation. Now, one caveat here. While Dr. Freeman and Dr. Chadwick seem overwhelmingly convinced that the Hebrew word for thigh here is absolutely and positively a a reference to the loins or the reproductive organs, I would just say that the grammatical evidence for that is somewhat less than 100% convincing. Because here's the thing, we certainly have passages where the Hebrew word yachek is used for loins. For instance, Genesis 46, 26, in the Young's literal translation says, All the persons who are coming to Jacob, to Egypt, coming out of his thigh, apart from the wives of Jacob's sons, all those persons are sixty and six. You'll note here that I actually had to go to Young's literal translation because almost every other modern translation, even the NASB, translates this passage as Jacob's descendants rather than persons coming out of Jacob's Yachrek, which is the more accurate word-for-word translation from the Hebrew. Obviously here, Yachrek does not denote thigh, but something along the lines of the loins or reproductive organs. But there are other scriptures where Yahweh obviously does refer to the thigh and not the reproductive organs. For instance, in Judges 3.21, Ehud, the left-handed judge, which I can't wait to get to that story, he has his sword strapped to his right Yahweh. And when he pulls it out and stabs it into Eglon's belly, well, like I said, we'll get to there. But you wouldn't... Uh, strap a sword to your loins. You would strap it to your thigh. Similarly, Genesis thirty-two twenty-five. when the angel of the Lord is wrestling with Jacob, he strikes Jacob's hip socket, or yachrek, as they wrestled and dislocated the hip socket. 
Ehud had his sword strapped to his yarek, and the angel of the Lord dislocated Jacob's yarek, or thigh hip, and not his reproductive organs, which wouldn't make sense in that context. So, we have some ambiguity here, and that's okay. We can't be definitive and say for 100% certain where Abraham's servant put his hand on Abraham, or even what that meant exactly. The point is, what we do know is that this was obviously an intimate and extremely important pledge that was made and honored by the servant. Honestly, I'm glad we do it differently today. Now, of more importance to us spiritually, I invite you to notice a critically important thing that this servant did twice in this passage when he saw that God had answered his prayer. Look at verse 26. Then the man knelt low and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. This is a really good reminder to me personally. Sometimes, probably more than I'd care to admit, I have been guilty of praying hard for something, and when God answers my prayer, I don't always thank Him with the same vigor and passion that I sought His favor with. You know, I pray and pray and pray, God answers the prayer, and I'm like, oh, thank you, God, this is great. But Abraham's servant did. He prayed hard, and he thanked God hard. His response was not merely a thankful sentence or two uttered in haste, half thought about, but it was a whole body act of worship and submission and prayer. He knelt down low and thanked God and worshiped him. Uh, tonight at our church, uh, Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, hey, come visit us if you're in the Salinas Monterey area. We meet Sundays at 1030. But tonight at our prayer time, we actually talked about this passage and we were reminded of the time that Jesus healed 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17. Nine of them were completely healed, miraculously healed, and they wandered off and went off and lived their life, whatever they did. Only one, one in 10 of those lepers came back and loudly thanked Jesus for basically saving his life in that culture. We, you and I, we need to be like that one Samaritan leper and like Abraham's servant, both of whom gave themselves to offer to God a real, active thanksgiving for his divine work on their behalf. And we don't need to be like the ungrateful nine lepers who gets what we ask for in prayer and then just goes upon happily, not barely acknowledging the God who gave it to us. So here's a few great quotes to close with on thankfulness that maybe will help us out. John Bunyan says, A sensible thanksgiving for mercies received is a mighty prayer in the Spirit of God. It prevails with Him unspeakably. Nancy DeMoss Walgamoth says, Be thankful. God has commanded it for our good and for His glory. God's command to be thankful is not the threatening demand of a tyrant. Rather, it is the invitation of a lifetime the opportunity to draw near to him at any moment of the day. The early church father Ambrose of Milan from the 300s says, No duty is more urgent than that of returning thanks. 
It's a good reminder. Charles Spurgeon, writing in the 1800s, says, If you search the world around among all the choice spices, you shall scarcely meet with the frankincense of gratitude. It ought to be as common as the dewdrops that hang upon the hedges in the morning, but alas, the world is dry of thankfulness to God. In other words, it's rare for people to be thankful. Spurgeon goes, I put it in another shape to you who are God's people. Most of us pray more than we praise. You pray little enough, I fear, but praise, where is that? At our family altars, we always pray, but seldom praise. In our prayer closets, we constantly pray, but do we frequently praise? Prayer is not as heavenly an exercise as praise. Prayer is for the current time, but praise is for eternity. Praise, therefore, deserves the first and the highest place, does it not? Let us commence the employment which occupies the heavenly beings. Prayer is for a beggar, but methinks he is a poor beggar who does not also give praise when he receives an offering. Praise ought to follow naturally upon the heels of prayer, even when it does not, by divine grace, go before it. If you are afflicted, if you lose money, if you fall into poverty, if your child is ill, if chastisement visits you in any form, you begin to pray, and I don't blame you for it. But should it be all praying and no praising? Should our life have so much salt and so little sweet in it? Should we get for ourselves so often a drink from the rock of blessing, and so seldom pour out a drink offering unto the Lord Most High? Come, let us chide ourselves as we acknowledge that we offer so so much more prayer than praise. That's a powerful reminder of from Charles Spurgeon. Final quote, Lisa Turkhurst says, If there ever was a secret for unleashing God's powerful peace in a situation, it is developing a heart of true thanksgiving. And amen to that. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food or water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Now before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they'd previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tenths of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem, because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the thirty-second year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there, along with grain offering and frankincense. I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. 
Therefore, I rebuke the officials, asking, Why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and fresh oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priests Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Padiah of the Levites, with Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, to assist them because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of foods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you're rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath? When shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem, Just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside of Jerusalem, but I warned them, Why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember then, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the firstborns, for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. Now, I I need to say this if you're new to the podcast. That episode is intense, and you might have questions about interracial marriage. And I will tell you, we covered that subject in some degree of depth in episode 10 of this podcast. I'll refer you back to that. 
But I'll just point out here very simply that the command in the Bible about marriage is not really about interracial marriage at all. It's about interfaith marriage. The command is to keep the followers of Yahweh following Yahweh. Moses, for instance, marries a woman that's not an Israelite. Many other of the greats in the Old Testament did, but they were followers of God. That's the key thing. So when you see Nehemiah here handling this, he's angry at the people for violating the commands of God in the same sense that Solomon did, that they chased after foreign gods. So this is not a matter of racial purity. So just like I said, point you back to episode number 10. We go into that a little bit more detail. We probably will in the future. But for now, let's go to Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in this chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seat at the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that is sanct- that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides! You strain out a gnat but gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your ancestors' sins. Snakes! Brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I am sending you prophets and sages and scribes, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now we'll say this, and, and I'm going to put a link on BibleReadingPodcast.com. The Matthew videos that I have um, recommended before, you need to watch that being enacted, that chapter, Matthew 23, being enacted in that. I've honestly never seen anything like that in uh, any sort of uh, portrayal of the Bible. I'll put a link at BibleReadingPodcast.com for this episode. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law you order me to be struck. Those standing by nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? I, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, You must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks. The following day, the night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage. 
For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. When it was the morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We've bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we've killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, What is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him, but don't let them persuade you, because there's more than forty of them lying in ambush, men who've bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they've killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, Don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready with seventy cavalry and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote the following letter. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent Governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Waiting to, wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law, and there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers brought Paul during the night and brought him to Antipetrus as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to their governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Amen. May it be that the word of the Lord is an encouragement to us, points us to Jesus, and builds us up. Good day and Godspeed.